Well, podcasters, uh, Yuletide greeting to you all from me, John Corey, your um, co-podcast host, and Kerry, my co-host. Hello. How are you? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, John. This is Podcasters. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, not a well-coordinated telephone dial-in, but we're actually in the same room, Kerry, for, for the first time since, uh, I think, February 2020 on the podcast. Yeah, indeed. Long Come on, sound more enthused. <laughs> so we have a cracking uh, Christmas special for you uh, today, podcasters, and uh, we have a guest speaker today, uh, Scott Warren, ACE Associate from our Banking uh, Disputes Group. Hello, Scott. Hi, John. First up in the veritable Christmas feast of cases we'll be serving up today is a true cracker from the Supreme Court, a recent decision that has been hotly anticipated in the world of class actions. Kerry, over to you. Uh, Thanks, John. So my favourite starter for Christmas dinner is my mum's classic melon with a slice of orange on top and an extra splash of orange juice, which I can only assume was a suggestion in good housekeeping at some point in the 1980s. Did she put cottage cheese with that or just the fruit juice? No, no, just just the fruit juice. It would curdle, wouldn't it? Yeah, I don't think that would be a good mix. Um, And it's still going strong in our household. Um, Fancy is what we think it is. Um, But for our starter today, I've selected the Supreme Court's decision in the high-profile case of Lloyd and Google, which, unless you started your festive celebrations recklessly early, you will no doubt have heard about by now. So I will keep my coverage focused on the key points coming out of the case which in-house lawyers at banks need to know about. And I think it's safe to say that there was a collective sigh of relief from the banking world when the Supreme Court overturned the Court of Appeals decision, which looked set to open the floodgates for class actions for compensation for loss of control of personal data being brought on behalf of huge numbers. So are banks going to be interested in this case primarily as data controllers, Kerry? Yes, Scott, that's definitely a key risk for banks here. But the case also represents an interesting development in terms of the procedural mechanisms that claimants may adopt in collective actions more generally. I plan to unpack both of those themes briefly today. And before you get started, can we just get a very quick reminder of the facts for this one? Yeah, of course. Or you could type it into a leading search engine and look for it that way. But over to you, Kerry, instead. (laughs) Yeah, of course. The claim against Google, was brought by a former executive director of the UK Consumers Association, who sought to do so on behalf of a class of over 4 million UK iPhone users, alleging that some of their internet activity was secretly tracked by Google for commercial purposes in 2011-2012. Mr Lloyd tried to use the representative action procedure under CPR 19.6, which allows a claim to be brought by or against one or more individuals as representatives of any others who have the same interest in the claim. In practice, this procedure allows an action to be brought on an opt-out basis, so that individual members of a given class, so long as they satisfy that same interest requirement, need not be identified to be represented. So if I could jump in with a question, Kerry, I think the open quote, opt out, close quote, nature of representative actions is key um, to, to, to this decision. Uh, I think it makes it easier for a claimant law firm and indeed a litigation funder to build a class in comparison to the traditional opt in mechanism used in group litigation orders where all the claimants need to be individually identified. Yeah, precisely, John. And that's exactly why the claimants were trying to use the representative action procedure in this case. 
However, this turned out to have a huge downside because the claimant could not rely upon the individual circumstances of the class members, quite simply because they were not and could not all be identified. So there are two key elements to the Supreme Court judgment. Uh, The first is the court's finding that a claim for damages for the unlawful processing of data under the Data Protection Act 1998 requires proof of damage in the form of either material damage, such as financial loss, or mental distress. It said that such damage must be distinct from and caused by the unlawful processing. It could not be the unlawful processing in and of itself. Secondly, and this is the really key point from a procedural perspective, it said that the court would have to consider the extent of the unlawful processing on an individual basis and without evidence of the individual circumstances of all those 4 million iPhone users, the claimant here could not prove that the damage was more than trivial so as to generate a right to compensation. So essentially, the claim under the DPA 1998 failed because of the attempt to use the opt-out CPR 19.6 procedure. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So it will not be possible to use the representative action procedure to bring this type of data breach claim without proof of individual circumstances. Although on this point, it is worth noting that the DPA 1998 is the old data privacy regime. And we now, of course, have, have the GDPR. So it's possible that future loss of control claims under the GDPR could proceed as a representative action. Our expert team on this topic recently delivered a couple of webinars covering issues such as this. So please do get in touch if you're interested in further detail and we will send you the link. From what you've said, Kerry, it seems difficult to imagine a scenario in which the representative regime could ever really be used where the relief sought is damages because of that need for individual assessment of those damages. That's a good observation, Scott. So it's important to emphasise here that the Supreme Court was not saying that the CPR 90.6 regime could never be used in a damages claim, um, whether as a result of data breach or more generally. However, it seems that the claim would need to be approached differently in order to do so, and the court gave a bit of guidance on this. So one option would be for a claimant to calculate damages for the whole class. This was referred to in the judgment as a top-down approach, which would avoid the need for individualised loss assessment. Or alternatively, the Supreme Court suggested that a bifurcated process could be adopted. So that common issues are decided first through the representative action, like whether or not there's been an actionable breach, with individual issues like quantum dealt with afterwards. But of course, the first stage would not generate any financial upside for the claimant's funder, and individual damages claims may not be economically viable. So we'll have to wait and see uh, what the claimant market makes of that suggestion. I suppose that's a sort of halfway house, Kerry, between the representative action and the GLO. Precisely. And I will stop there. But if you would like a more detailed read of this case, then please do check out our blog post. There is, of course, a link in the show notes. Thank you very much, Kerry, for that very tasty starter. And as Kerry mentioned, uh, we've recently held two webinars in which our privacy, data security, litigation, uh, class actions and insurance experts discussed the Lloyd and Google judgment and its likely impact on commercial parties. Please do get in touch if you'd like to be sent a link to the recordings. So, next to the table, we have a couple of cases on the perennial favourite, contractual construction. 
and I'll be taking this one. Uh, so we're on to our main course with this one. Uh, in our local pub, they've started doing Kerry Kentucky Fried Partridge, would you believe? No way. I don't know if we're allowed to advertise pubs, but it's on the Wiltshire Dorset border and it's in a village called Farnham. I won't give the name of the pub. but it's... I feel this says something about the demographic of the area in which you live. Well, there's a lot of uh, roadkill around there. Anyway, um, I, I have here a succulent deep dive for you on uh, Knights and Townsend, which is a helpful recent authority on the importance of contractual disclaimers. Always such a hot topic in financial services disputes because of the need for a clear allocation of risk between the parties. It's not actually a banking case but it clearly has a read-across value on this aspect. Here, the relationship between the claimants and the defendant accounting firm had been documented through a number of engagement letters which incorporated the accounting firm's standard terms of business and a, a, a limitation of liability letters. So the claimants later brought a breach of duty claim against the accounting firm and sought damages for losses that they alleged they had suffered due to the firm having introduced them to various tax and FX trading schemes. Would I be right to assume the accounting firm placed a lot of reliance on those engagement and limitation of liability letters to rebut the existence of that duty? You would be absolutely correct there, Kerry. The firm denied it owed any common law or contractual duty of care to the claimants or that the claimants were entitled to and did indeed rely on the firm. The firm said that it was a mere introducer of the schemes in question to the claimants, and it said that the terms of business and limitation of liability letters made it clear that the firm was not providing, and could not provide, advice in relation to the tax or FX trading schemes. Sounds like a classic execution-only service to me. Yes, I agree, Kerry, and fortunately so did the court, which found in favour of the accounting firm and dismissed the claim upholding the terms, setting out the basis of the party's relationship. And that is one in which the defendant firm has not assumed any responsibility to provide advice in respect to the schemes. The court placed particular emphasis on the terms of business and limitation of liability letters, which it said were expressed in clear terms. One point I think is worth uh, drawing out from the judgment is the court's suggestion that the disclaimer should not be approached uh, as if it were a contractual exclusion. Rather, the court said that the disclaimer was one of the facts relevant to the question of whether there had been an assumption of responsibility by the firm as part of the test for establishing the duty of care alleged. Now, I'm conscious that there has been a plethora of cases considering clauses such as this over the past few years. Um, John, how does this judgment sit in the context of those other decisions? There's a lot of syllables there after that mulled wine, Scott. But yes, I think saying that the no advice clause in the disclaimer did not amount to an exclusion of liability, and that's in line with other recent authorities such as Fine Care Homes and First Tower. But in my view, there's a technical distinction as to whether a disclaimer is merely a factor in the test for establishing a duty of care or whether it creates a contractual estoppel, essentially a knockout blow to defeat a breach of advisory duty claim. In the present case, the court questioned whether the principles relating to contractual estoppel could arise because the question of advice related to the entry into a contract with a third party. The court did not decide the point, but I don't think that that particular distinction would necessarily prevent the operation of a contractual estoppel. And how do we think the relationship between the parties would have been viewed without that limitation of liability letter. Mm. Interestingly, the court did comment on this. 
mentioning that even without such a letter having been signed, the nature of the relationship at that point between the two parties in respect of the schemes was one where the defendant had made clear that it assumed no responsibility towards the claimants for introductions and or advice. So overall, I think the decision will be welcomed by banks as um, highlighting the difficulties for claimants in establishing that a bank owed an advisory duty of care where the factual circumstances and contractual documentation clearly indicate a transaction-only scenario. So for an even deeper dive into this development, you can, as ever, find a link to our blog post in the show notes. And John, I think you have a second contractual construction case for us. Yes, indeed I do. The metaphorical dish of Brussels sprouts uh, for today's banquet is the charmingly named Blue Sky Solutions against Be Caring. Although set in a non-financial context, I'm flagging this decision because um, of its discussion about incorporating standard terms and conditions by reference, which is likely to be of general interest in a financial services context. So a quick summary of the facts. Uh, The defendant signed a purchase order form acknowledging that it had accessed and read the standard terms and conditions on the claimant's website, although in reality, as many of us do, it had done neither. I'm shocked by that, John. I didn't say I. I said many of us. (laughs) I was trying to be kind to some of our podcasters. But in any event, the controversial clause in this case required the defendant to pay cancellation fees. And according to the court, and I'm quoting... This clause had been, open quote, cunningly concealed in the middle of a dense thicket which none but the most dedicated could have been expected to discover and extricate, close quote. On this basis, although the court found that the claimant standard terms were incorporated by reference into the signed contract, it said the cancellation fee clause was not. The court said the clause was onerous and the claimant had not done enough to draw the defendant's attention to it. That's really interesting, John. Definitely a point to consider for financial institutions looking to incorporate possibly more burdensome obligations into its contracts with its clients. Yes, um, the uh, Lord Denning Red Hand comes to mind. Thornton and Shulane Parking, 1971 appeal cases, Kerry, I think. Have you got the full citation, John? I can't remember the page number, Kerry. But anyway, the case is a useful reminder that those clauses uh, within standard T's and C's that impose such requirements should be made obvious to the other party prior to contracting. And this is especially the case where the standard terms are incorporated by reference as opposed to contained in the contract itself. John, do you think that there are any implications for the enforceability of standard for market documents? I'm thinking, of, for example, the ISDA Master Agreement. That's a good question, Scott. I, I think the read across for those sort of documents would be limited. If you take ISDA that you asked about, for example, the uh, ISDA agreement is widely known and used by members of the finance sector and beyond. So unlike the facts of the present case, it, it's not produced by a single counterparty. And parties using ISDA are likely to be very well versed in its contents and implications. Mm. But uh, anyway, uh, for more detailed of, uh, coverage of this one, please see uh, the link in the show notes. Now, I think we're turning to our guest, Scott, who's going to discuss a case relevant to the true Grinch of last year's Christmas, COVID-19. It certainly was, John. It certainly was. The case I'm going to be talking about is London Trocadero against the Picture House Cinemas, the latest in a line of recent judgments concerning the disruption of commercial arrangements arising out of the pandemic. Uh, This one relates to a claim for arrears of rent and service charges for cinema premises in central London. 
With the cinema theme, I think this is an opportune moment for me to recommend to you my favourite Christmas movie, which is Elf. Mainly because I personally think uh, all should be able to eat dessert for breakfast and that should be a human right enjoyed by everyone and not just Will Ferrell at Christmas. So there you go. If you haven't seen it, make sure to put it on your list this year. Anyway, I think the Trocadero case is particularly interesting because it provides a contrast to the previous COVID-19 related claims, considering whether contractual performance can be excused as a result of the pandemic. While there have been a limited number of such cases to date, they have predominantly considered force majeure or frustration type arguments. But here the defendant said that the rent was not payable on the basis of alleged implied terms and a total failure of consideration or failure of basis. However, these arguments were unfortunately unsuccessful for the tenant. So, Scott, was there any consideration of the fact that for a big chunk of the pandemic, it was actually unlawful for the premises to have operated as a cinema? Yeah, the court did acknowledge that at certain times the tenant would not have legally been able to open as a cinema. And indeed, that at other times it would have frankly been uneconomic to do so. Even so, the court's conclusion was that there was no real prospect of the tenants establishing that their payment obligations were suspended during those periods as a result of some sort of implied term. There was similarly no real prospect of establishing that there had been a failure of basis. It's worth noting that although the argument failed here, the court did highlight the possibility of a party pursuing a claim for unjust enrichment for rent sums paid in certain circumstances. For example, where the use of the premises in a specified way was fundamental to the parties entering into the lease and that specified use was unavailable for a specified period, if the lease could be severed on a time basis, theoretically there could be an argument for total failure of basis in respect of a severable part. Hmm. Uh, on that basis, it seems like this could have wider implications beyond the world of commercial renting, Scott. I agree, John. There was nothing in the judgment indicating that implications ought to be limited, so it may be possible to make the unjust enrichment argument in more general cases, where a party has been unable to enjoy a fundamental benefit under the contract, even for a limited time. Although those sorts of circumstances are frankly likely to be quite rare. Also, the court here noted that while such a claim for restitution of sums paid due to a failure of basis, failure of basis could not provide a defence against a contractual claim for that payment. This would amount to a doctrine of temporary or partial frustration, which, as we know, the courts have rejected in the past. If you're interested in some further detail on this one, check out the link in the show notes. And if you really can't get enough of the COVID-related content, you can also find a link to the article we recently published in the Journal of International Banking Law and Regulation, entitled COVID-19 Market Disclosures and Managing the Associated Litigation Risks. I know, catchy. It considers the type of disclosures relating to the pandemic that have been made by listed companies seeking to strengthen their balance sheets and the potential litigation risks that might arise from them. Thank you very much, Scott. <clears throat> Perfect reading for the holidays. Now, to round off our Christmas special, uh, Kerry, you have um, a veritable Christmas cracker of an update, but some salutary words of warning as we edge ever closer to the party season. 
thank you, John. Mm. Uh, so to go out with a bang on this special edition, I asked our fabulous paralegal, Laura, to undertake what she described as the most entertaining legal research task that she will ever be assigned. I hope that proves to be true. Um, so the brief was naturally a Christmas-themed legal authority, and I'm super impressed with the case that she has found, uh, from which I think we can all take some important advice in anticipation of the Christmas party season, which may have already started for some of our listeners. I know it certainly has for me. Um, so today we're going to take a look at the 2019 case of Shelbourne and Cancer Research. In a nutshell, the defendant charity was hosting its annual Christmas party with all the expected festivities and overindulgence. Robert Bielik, a visiting scientist who was not employed by the charity, attended the party as a guest. And after a few too many of his chosen Christmas tipple, attempted to lift the claimant who was one of the charity's animal technicians in a showy dance move. The display did not end well. Having lost his balance, Bielik dropped her and she unfortunately suffered a back injury. The court held that Bielik had breached the duty of care he owed to the claimant and that he was sufficiently integral to the business, despite not being an employee, for the charity to have assumed vicarious liability. However, here the charity was not found to be liable because it had taken reasonable steps to mitigate the risk. But would the defendant charity not have been vicariously liable had they not taken those steps in planning the event? Correct. Mm -hmm. um, so make sure your social committee give your Christmas parties a proper mm -hmm. risk assessment. Uh, we all missed out last year, so we're bound to be a little bit overexcited. So following this case, Kerry, that would mean avoiding showstopper dance moves, too much free wine, and animal technicians. That sounds about right to me, Scott. Hmm. Well, a salutary warning there for us all. It's, it's happened to us all. <coughs> I know. Uh, well, listen, podcasters, uh, I do wish it uh, could be Christmas every day. I've had a fabulous time uh, this afternoon, especially with the mulled wine. Thank you, Kerry. Um, I hope our little chorus this afternoon has brought you a smile this Yuletide. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, to our guest speaker, Scott, uh, to Laura behind the glass, she's waving through the glass, uh, and to my co-host, Kerry. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas, podcasters, and we'll speak to you in 2022. We're about to go into that. Yes, thank you. All the very best. Goodbye. <laughs>